Open your Bibles to Psalm 123. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us. For we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. And Romans 12.1 continues, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. We are working through the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 to 134. We're on Psalm 123 today. And we started this a few weeks back, and these were... These were songs that were sung by the Israelites as they made their way up three times a year to the annual feast of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacle up to Jerusalem. And they would sing as they would leave their hometowns and they would gather together as communities and they would sing these songs as they made their way up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was set up on a hill. And we've had a chance to look at them. This one, the 123rd Psalm is a short psalm. It's only four verses. Um, and you probably think, oh, well, then it'll be a short sermon. No, sorry, just the opposite. There was so much here that I actually had to cut back and kept, keep cutting back. But the thing that kept coming out again and again in my studies, my prayer time, was that this psalmist is singing about service and how we are to serve God and then serve one another. And what's so amazing is service is a skill set. It's something that we learn. It's something that we grow in. And it's not easy. In fact, I... I don't know how many of you opened up your bulletin and you went, servanthood, can I get out the back door? Because this is not going to be a sermon that I want to hear. When we talk about serving, it's counter our sin nature. It's opposite. We want to serve ourselves, right? So servanthood is about serving others, and therefore there's conflict. And unfortunately, in our, in our country, in our time, um, it's often misunderstood when we talk about what it means to serve. What I love about the Psalms is you don't get a list of rules and regulations. They're songs, right? If Jim were going to write a song, he wouldn't you know, go down and look at you know, the civil code for uh, traffic violations in the city of San Jose. That wouldn't be you know, lyrics that you'd want to sing, right? So these are, you're not going to get a list of rules and regulations. It's a song, and it's to be sung, and it's an illustration of a person that's living in accordance with faith, Submitting and obeying God, and now the love that God has for them and their love for God, we're seeing it displayed. It's illustrated. And so we're going to look at what, we're going to peek at this morning, the servant's life, what it looks like. Because the servant here in Psalm 123 has much to say. Four things we're going to see in our observation of the servant. Posture, expectation, urgency, and freedom. Posture, expectation, urgency, urgency, and freedom. So first, let's look at the posture. What do I mean by posture? I'm not talking about, you know, whether you sit with your shoulders crunched over. The position you have before God. How you see yourself before a holy God. Everybody sits up. That's good. That's better for your back. You cannot begin or let alone maintain a life as a servant unless you first start with right posture before God. And it begins in verse 1. Look with me. I says the psalmist, lift my eyes up to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. Looking up to God. Not at God because God is our equal, not down at God because God is our slave and we are the master, but we look up to his throne. He is the king and his throne is above us and we are below. Without this posture, 
It is impossible to hear the imperatives set forth by God in his word and to engage as a servant. Now, this teaching on servanthood in our culture, it's hard, period. Sin nature says we don't like it. But in our culture, in our time, when we talk about equality, and even, even within Christian circles, we come into a saving grace in Christ, and we hear teachings like Jesus saying, you're no longer my servant, you are my, you're my friend. And then we have God reveal himself through Jesus Christ as what? As not just a servant, but a suffering servant. And then Christ has the audacity to tell us that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we will be able to do things greater than himself. And so immediately, with with equality and that power, there's a tendency, even within the church, to inverse the role and the relationship and the posture. What do I mean? We put ourselves above God, and we try to tell him what to do. We hear these teachings out of context that God is our servant and we think, okay, so God's at my disposal to meet my needs, (laughs) right? Not king, not almighty God, Father. Or we use God as the expert, right? We're in a bind, we're in a Christ situation, I need an expert, who do I go to? We'll go to God. God, get me out of this bind. Some of us like to use God as a magic genie. You don't have a lamp, but you have a prayer. And if you say that prayer enough times on every Tuesday and Thursday, on every odd month, right, it's going to work out somehow. Some of us look at God as just somebody that we call into our presence when we're lonely or we need someone to hang out with. Listen, when God came as a suffering servant, he didn't come to put himself in a box like that. He's God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth, of all that is seen and unseen. He's God. And he came as a servant to call us as servants to engage in the work of redemption, the redemption of mankind in a broken universe. So, and if you think about it for just a minute, the thought of God being beneath us is reprehensible. I mean, if you, you want to worship God, you don't want to worship a God that doesn't know as much about you as you know about you. In fact, we need a God. If God's going to be God at all, we need a God who knows more about how we think, more about how we feel, and more about what we really need, right? If, we want, if we're going to have a God at all. We need to have a God that knows more about our relationships and the struggles we're having in our marriage or with our children or in the church or in the community. We need a God, if we're going to have a God at all, that is sovereign over all that hasn't let things get out of control, that knows what's taking place here in San Jose and in the state of California and in the world. We need a God like that. We must have a God like that. And so the psalmist starts off and says, we look up to you whose throne is in heaven. And this is not geography. This is theology, right? It's not earth, heaven. It's relationship. And so the psalmist is saying, the right relationship is, you're God, I'm not. You're creator, I'm creation. You're master, I'm servant. I'm going to look up to you, not at you or down at you. The Bible says that Heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool. We live where? At the footstool, submitting, looking up to him. And the Bible teaches us, presents to us, reveals to us that this God, this God not only loves us, but shows us how he loves us and then teaches us how to love him. This God not only guides us, but then gives us living examples of how we're guided by him. Constantly engaged So here's the trick or the key for us that if you want to know God at all, you got to know the God of the Bible. You got to know the God of the Bible through Jesus Christ. And whatever other God that we come up with that's not through Scripture and through Christ is not the real living God whose throne is in heaven. If this were not so, 
if we, we actually brought down God down to our level, you would be contemptuous of this God, right? I mean, if God's just a puzzle to figure out or a tool that we use when we're in need, this would not be a God that we could serve. We must have a God that's above us. We must have a God that's above all things, right? So that we can look our eyes up to him whose throne is in heaven and worship him and serve him. So first and foremost, service starts with posture, position, God, man. Creator, creation. Okay? Second thing. The servant expects. What does the servant expect? That almost sounds contradictory, right? What Should a servant expect anything? The Bible says yes. In fact, we should have radical expectations as servants of God. Look with me, please. The mystery here. When we look up to God and we see his throne in heaven, you don't figure him out. God is not someone to be figured out. Right? In fact, what we do is we enter into the mystery and the magnificence of an almighty, infinite creator. Right? And the more that we dwell, the more that we meditate, the more that we learn, the more we realize how little we really know. This God, I mean, we're finite, sinful creatures. Right? And God is infinite and eternal. In fact, I would, I would argue, theologically, that we will spend all of eternity growing in the wisdom and knowledge of God. All of eternity. Why? Because he's infinite. So we'll never get to the end saying, I know God completely. Which is fantastic. I mean, those of you who have visions of heaven where you're going to have these little wings and a harp and you're just going to sing the same song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, you know, it's vastly different. What we do, though, is we try to take God and put him into a box. We try to make God into a two-dimensional character. And by doing that, by saying, okay, God, I'm going to package you and I'm going to define you, we then distort the character and image of God. So the Bible says, on one hand, you can't know him completely, but it also says you can know him. And in knowing him, you can have certain expectations of him. What do I mean by that? He's a father, right? There's an intimate personal relationship with his children. Now, most children have some expectations of their mothers and fathers, even as sinful creatures. So what should we expect of our Father God. What expectations should we have of him as a good king, as a good father? And the psalmist says it in the latter part of verse 2 and 3. So our eyes look up to the Lord our God till he shows us mercy. Verse 3. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy. The servant expects mercy from God. And it's a reasonable, right expectation. Why? Because at the very base of Christianity, the believer understands and knows that God intends our best, right? Intends what is good for us. He desires what is best for us. In fact, what he desires for us is better than what we desire for ourselves, even though we think other. This weird idea that God is some police officer just waiting to taser you, you know, if you get out of line or, or, or throw you in jail if you get belligerent. It's not scripture. It's not Bible. It's not the God of Jesus Christ, God reveals himself, and he did to Jeremiah. He says, I'm a potter, and your whole life is clay. And I am the master potter, and I take you into my hands, and I mold you, and I shape you, and I will create in you a vessel that's worthy and fit for my kingdom. And I'm going to do all this, and I'm going to work it out in your life. He reveals to Jeremiah the relationship between God and redeemed man. Let me just read to you verses 1 through 4 in Jeremiah 18. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Verse 2, go down to the potter's house and there I will give you my message. So Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and he said, I saw him working at the wheel, 
But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. What's best to God is what's best for us. And so the psalmist cries out, mercy, God, mercy. And it's not, it's not a prayer saying, maybe we can convince him. You know, he, just, he does, he wants to taser us. We don't want to be tasered. Maybe we cry out for mercy, he won't taser us. That's not what the prayer is. The prayer is saying, God, give to us what you promised. Give to us what we expect a godly father to give. Mercy. And they're reaching out. And so the prayer changes. And it should change for us. Let me ask you this. In your prayer time in the last week, how much of it was for mercy? The servant prays for mercy, not God give me this because I want it or need it. The servant prays for mercy, not Lord, I've been really good. I've been really good lately. Aren't you going to bless me? Right? The servant prays for mercy, not Lord, punish me so I feel better about myself and we can move on with this whole dreadful thing we call life. Right? Mercy, Lord, mercy, mercy, mercy. One commentator put it like this. Mercy is that aspect of God's love, listen, that causes him to help the miserable and undeserving. (laughs) That's perfect. The aspect of God's love that causes him to help the miserable and undeserving to make right broken lives of sinners just like us. And that's how God approaches us. As sinners, miserable and broken, what does he do? He gives us his mercy, mercy-filled love, mercy-filled instruction, mercy-filled patience, mercy-filled guidance, his mercy-filled presence. He pours all that out on us, even though we're completely undeserving. And that's why the servant says, give me mercy, Lord. I don't deserve it, but I'm asking you. And I know you, God, as a father, you want to give it. God wants to give mercy. He wants to fill your life with his presence and his joy. He wants to. It's not like this bargaining thing you got to, you know, try to somehow fool God. He wants to give you mercy. And so he says to the servant, pray for it. He doesn't line us up like aliens, you know, uh, evaluating, you know, how good we are at this or, or how strong we are at that. He looks at us and he rules over us and he guides us and he speaks to us and he comforts us like a father does his children. But with our heavenly father... The destiny of the children he holds in his own heart. God has such a better desire for you than you have for yourself. Do you know that? The servant does. And so the servant says, mercy, Lord, mercy. In fact, the word in the Hebrew is kanan. You don't need to know that, but know its root. It's fantastic. The word mercy in the Hebrew comes from a root word which means to bend or stoop down in kindness to an inferior. So do you know what the psalmist is saying? When he's saying, mercy, Lord, he's saying, stoop down, bend down, come down into my life and into this world. Commune with us, oversee us, guide us, save us, and deliver us into your kingdom. It's not just, mercy, Lord, I've been bad, get me out of this. It's come down. I love that. The psalmist is praying for Christ. He's saying, come down, Lord, you've got to come down. When my children were little, they're not so little anymore, not even Joshua. I mean, he's young, but he's not small. But when my children's whole life was below two feet, sea level, you know, they're always down on the ground and just walking around, not so much walking. Um, And they would cry out because they were hurt or they were working on something they couldn't figure out. I didn't stand up and say, come on, you know, stand up yourself, young man. Or, or, hey, fix it like this. What did I do? What do do parents do? What do you do? 
You get down on your knees, you, you have mercy. You come down, right? And you, you get into their presence so they can see you. And if they're hurt, you help them. And if they're stuck, you unstick them, right? And if they have a puzzle, you help them. Kirk, my oldest boy, when he was about two, because Brandon was born, they, we had a crib. And the crib had a crawl space underneath it. And Kirk loved to go under there. <laughs> There's some other stuff I could tell you that was really funny but embarrassing. But he loved to go under there. And if he was, so if he was upset, he'd go under there. If he, you know, if he, sometimes he would just go and play. And so what I would do, especially if he was upset... I'd crawl in the crib with him. And so we would, dad and, and son, under the crib together. And, we're, and what did I do? I, that's mercy. That's coming down, right? And sometimes we just play. Sometimes we just hang out under the crib together. Stooping. Servant. Servanthood is not this vague meandering toward God. And it's not cowering thinking he's just going to smack you down. Servanthood is a proper position before God with a right expectation of God. That he's going to have mercy. And therefore, we call for it. Number three, urgency. What is so urgent about the servant? Look at verses three and four. There's an urgency to this, to this prayer in this song. Verse three, look. Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. Some of you read that, and it stung a little bit because you know how that feels. I mean, you know the cry. Human history has been filled with this same type of lyric. Crying out for relief from being oppressed, from the contempt and from the scorn of others. This cry out. And it used to be, and in other parts of the world still is, an institutional cry. Where there was real slavery and second class citizens. Defined as such, born into, and you die in that. And so this cry, even in our own history, in in American history, still we see the results of that type of oppression from those in power against those who do not have power. Our own history, the history of literature, bears this out. And yet you say, well, we don't have it today. We don't have classes today. We don't have slaves today. But don't you feel enslaved today? I mean, there's a sense, even in this free country, as much as we espouse freedom and talk about freedom and teach to freedom, in this country because of human nature, that there's that sense of being bound, of not truly being free. And if you don't believe me, talk to some young people. Talk to high schoolers. High schoolers are some of the most bounded people, in their minds anyway. They want to do this. They want to do that. Their parents won't let their teachers. And it's just constant, I can't, I can't, I can't. Freedom is on our lips all the time. We sing about it. And this holiday, you'll hear about it. The sacrifice is made. But there's bondage still. Not, not in institutionalized slavery, not in second-class citizens, but bondage nonetheless. Sociologists, even in light of American culture, make this observation that as a free people, two things stand out that make it an inherent contradiction. One, we complain an extraordinary amount. And two, we have a culture of addicts. Now, how is that possible? If we are the land of the free, how is the land of the free, how does it coincide with people that are constantly complaining or addicted to something? Now, the complaints may be something as simple as, you know, I can't spend my money the way I want to spend it, I can't spend my time, I can't be myself. But a complaint, nonetheless, is an indication of lack of freedom, right? You want to, but you can't. You're bound. But even more so, in our culture, 
We have, and I agree with this, we live in a culture of addicts. I mean, we're addicted to everything. You say, well, what? Drugs, alcohol, sex? Yes, of course, those things. But what else? How about work? Hmm? How about relationships? How about sports? My goodness. How about online? All right, I'm touching nerve here. Online gaming. Hmm? We, we can be addicted to everything, and we are addicted to everything. And so here's the shift, ready? It's not freedom that we're, that we're striving for. It's a right master, right? In our culture, in our time, we say freedom, freedom, freedom. But if you observe it, all we're doing is exchanging one master for another. That's all we're doing. We're just changing up masters, but we're still enslaved. And the Christian gets it. The Christian says, you know what? I'm not going to do the shell game anymore. I'm not just going to move from master to master to master. I'm going to come and submit myself to the master, to the king. And I'm going to come under him. And they said, enough of the games. The real problem is not freedom. It's having the right master. You get that. You know that. You've experienced that in your own life. Every single relationship, whether it's biological, husband, wife, parent, child, friend, boyfriend, girlfriend, non-biological, you with your games, you with TV, you with whatever. Every single relationship with Christ, God is not Lord over it, will become ultimately destructive. Because that thing that you submit to will become your master, you'll become the slave, and it will ultimately destroy you. And so what the psalmist is saying here, when he says, mercy, Lord, mercy, there's urgency. What is the urgency? The psalmist is saying, I want to come under you. I don't want any of these other masters. I don't want to be tempted anymore. I don't want to be submitting anymore to my boss or to my husband or to my wife or to my children. I don't want that to be my mastery. I want you to be my master. And I want to be your servant. Now, the psalmist says, not tomorrow, but today, I want to come under you. And that means not just standing around going, all right, I'll just wait to see what happens. Saying, speak to me, Lord. I am your servant. Speak to me. I will listen and I will follow. Show me. I will follow you. I'll pick up my cross. I want to turn away from all these things that tempt me to submit to them. And I want to turn to you and I want to hold on to you. So three aspects of servanthood. And the servant, when we come under God, he's a good master and he's working all things out for our ultimate good. And that's why there's an urgency for it. So the servant has the right posture before God, the right expectation, which is mercy from God. And... The urgency to have it now. Now, as we hear those things, and I, and I know how Americans respond to this. I mean, we do. We hear service is counter-American, right? Because it's what? It's about you, your success, your dreams, right? Your hopes. I mean, how many commercials do you see, you know, lift up your brother's hopes, protect your sister's dreams, fight for your classmates? How much of that? It's about us, we, me, individual. And so if you're uncomfortable, if you've heard this as a, as a true red-blooded American, you're saying service, not liking it. You know, if, if, you, if the only thing that you learned from your 8th grade civics class was that somewhere in some, some law it says you have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that's your, you know, you couple that with John 8, 36, where Christ, you know, Jesus sets you free, then you're free indeed, and that's what you hold on to. You know, my freedom, my personal rights, my life, my liberty, my happiness. Then, and, and, and I'm talking about service, and you're all bent out of shape, then just, just relax, all right? Just take a deep breath, because I'm not compelling you to do anything scriptures don't without the right reasons to do it. I put on here in your handout, Romans chapter 12, the last 
chapter 12 through chapter 16, probably the best New Testament commentary on this psalm. Just read it. So go back this week, read Psalm 123, and then go read Romans 12 through 16. Romans 12, chapter 1 starts off like this. Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of God coming down, in view of God dying on the cross, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He's saying, in light of the work of Christ, take your whole life, all of who you are, All your thoughts, all your words, all your actions, all your work, all your play, all your books, all your movies, all of everything, and bring it before God and submit it to Him. Become a living sacrifice. Become a servant. Not just serve, you know, random acts of kindness, but come under God in total, without exception. All your relationships, every moment of every day. And He says, in light of this, serve Don't serve because you're being coerced to. Don't serve because you're convicted. Don't serve because you feel guilty. Serve because of your radical love for God, because of who he is and what he's done through Christ. There's the power. There's the motivation to do it. Paul makes it clear. He says, this is your spiritual act, better life of worship. The King James puts it like this. This is your reasonable service. In the Greek... It, it literally means service that makes sense. You say, wait a second. When does serving others ever make sense? Because it's always against me, right? If I'm serving someone else, then it's not serving me. And as a sinful creature, I want to serve me. But Paul's saying, this is service that makes sense how? Let's think. Let's reason together. If God is who he is, and he did what he did through Christ, and he did stoop down, he poured out his mercy through Christ. And he saved us, and he redeemed us, and he brought us into his family. Then it is infinitely reasonable and logical to commit your whole life, right? Because you have eternity. He gave you eternity. And he's saying, now you've got a few years to, to live for me. You've got eternity. It's reasonable, highly reasonable, to say, I, I want to be a servant. I want to submit to you. I want to come under you. The order of operation here is imperative because if you don't get this, you'll leave here going, this is really hard and I can't do it. Worship, listen, worship produces servants. Your worship of the living God through prayer, through scripture, through meditation, through corporate gatherings, through song, worshiping God cultivates in you a love for him. And that love for him will cultivate in you what Christians call, weird phrase, servant's heart. You ever heard that? Oh, someone's have a servant's heart. What does that look like? And I think of this heart and what's well, a servant's heart. So it's very different, right? A desire fundamentally to serve. Better put, a greater desire to serve others than to serve yourself. That comes from God. The degree to which we worship God rightly, daily, weekly, For our whole life, you'll want to serve more. So the worst thing you can do is hear a message on service and go out there and say what? I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder to serve my kids, but I don't want to. I'm going to try harder to serve my friends who I don't like. I'm going to try harder. That's not what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is saying, serve God. Love God. Worship God. And guess what? You'll become a servant. Organically. From the inside out. Remember Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 6, what happens? God goes, come here, Isaiah. 
Brings him up into the throne room. He's in the throne room, right? He's no longer looking up. He's looking at God. God's on the throne. Do you remember what Isaiah says? He gets in the throne room of God, and you think, happy days are here, right? I mean, it's party time. What does he say? What are the first words out of Isaiah's mouth? He says, woe to me, I am ruined, a.k.a. I'm a dead man. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I'm dead. Does God kill him? Mm -mm. Should he? His right desert, sinful man, holy God, he should have died. But what does God do? He sends an angel, remember, and he touches his lips with hot coal, and basically he makes him clean. He makes him clean in his presence. So Isaiah can be in his presence. And now he and God can worship together and commune together and have relationship between father and son and creator and creation again. So God makes it right. He saves Isaiah. You know this story. And then what does Isaiah do? Thank you, Lord. I got to go. What does he do? It's fantastic. I'll read it to you. A loud voice came from the throne. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah, he stands up and raises his head. He goes, here I am. Send me. God didn't even say where he was going to send him or what he was going to send him for. But Isaiah, so enthralled with this right relationship with the living God, says, I'll go. You don't know where I'm going to send you, Isaiah. It doesn't matter. But it's going to be really bad. I'll go. I'll go wherever you want me to go, to whatever people you want me to go to. I will serve in any capacity you want me to serve. Send me, Lord. Where did that response come from? One minute, he's probably down on his face saying, woe to me, I'm a dead man. And the next minute, he's saying, send me, I'll go. It was grace. It was mercy. It was God. Relationship restored. The restoration of a relationship with God will make you into a servant. Inside out. It is good, sister. I agree. Years ago, when I would teach, my students would come, usually fall quarter, they'd go, Mr. Booth, this year, this year, straight A's. I'm going to get straight A's. And I'd sit down and say, that's noble. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not your goal. Your goal is not to come here and get straight A's. Your goal is to come here as a student and what? And learn. Novel thought, right? To learn. To understand. To grow in wisdom and knowledge. Not just get an A. And so I counsel them very lovingly. say, listen, you want A's? Yes, good. Then be a good student. Go to class. Read the textbooks. Take notes. Learn. And if you do all that, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get A's. Right? Good students who study and learn and grow, they get A's. But starting, I'm going to get A's, rather than I want to learn, outside in versus inside out. Same with scripture. Same with service. God says, be transformed by me, and you'll become a servant. I will make you into a servant. Don't just go out and try to do it yourself. And what happens is all the commands of God, it's extraordinary to me. The psalm says nothing about serving one another. Nothing. Not a word. Why? Because the psalmist gets it. He says, if we submit to God, if we worship God, if we serve God, we will serve one another. All of God's commands to us will become sweet like honey. When he says, be hospitable to people you don't like, we're not going to go, really? Lord? Why'd you put that in there? When God says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, are you serious? I mean, who does that? You'll want to. When God says, be humble and patient with those who drive you crazy, I know that You don't have any people like that in your life. How do you do that? How do you serve them like that? God says, worship me. Love me. And I will give you the servant's heart. I will change your desires from the inside out. 
And here's what happens. It's fantastic. Now this is, you say, you're, you're so hyperbolic in your speech. This is fantastic. Are you listening? What changes is the desire in you. And so you, like Christ, will have a greater desire serving others than you have serving yourself. You want a life paradigm shift? There it is. Because in our sin nature, all we want to do is serve ourselves. But when you have this right relationship with God restored and engaged in and exercised on a daily basis, your desires will change from serving you to serving others because of your love for God. And that changes everything. All your relationships change. I'll give you a crude example. I hate shopping. I hate shopping. I hate shopping. And I had a list of things I had to get done which required me to shop. And I put it off and put it off and put it off. Kirk needed a new pair of tennis shoes. He had a hole in it. He had one of the cleats on his screw-on cleats was missing. I had to go get that, you know. Um, Josh, he had a flat tire. I had to, so I'm out and I'm running, you know. So it could have gone one of two ways. Absolute drudgery for me that I'm, you know, all these different places. Or... From a servant's perspective, is what? So thankful that I had an opportunity to serve my sons whom I love, whether it be shoes or cleats or tires or whatever, that I could go, that I had the means to actually buy it, that I could go and get it and come home and fix the tire and fix the shoes and give the shoes and say, here. And I was so thankful because that day, which could have started off as a really bad day with like three hours of straight shopping, was joyful for me. And it was, honestly. And I was joyful shopping. That's a miracle. That's God giving me a greater desire for others than myself. You want to serve? Have God change your heart in that capacity. So service is not drudgery. It is joy. Exciting. Now here, some of you are saying, okay, I'm going to try. This is not an act of the will. Trying hard to serve will only make your service hard. Okay? This is not an act of the will. It is a relationship with God. And here's why. Our sin nature runs so deep. We are so fundamentally self-centered and focused on ourselves. That serving anyone other than ourselves first is really hard. So if you go out and you just try, say, you know what, I see this, I see what the psalmist said, I see my command and call to serve, I'm just going to try to be a servant. It will be difficult to impossible. The psalmist says, mercy, Lord, mercy, bend your knee down, come down, come down from heaven to earth, from your throne to the footstool, and show me. I mean, it's a, he says, show me. You're calling me to be a servant, I don't want to be a servant. You're telling me to care for others, I want to care for myself. Show me how it's done I run around like a brute beast, and it's all about me, and yet you created me in your image a little less than the gods to love and serve others. Show me how it's done. And I love it. You know what happens here? The answer to the prayer is in Christ. Christ said in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to what? To be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He says, I'm going to come down. The psalmist says, mercy, have mercy, come down. And he goes, okay, I will. And he did. And he came down as a man, as a servant. Not to be served, but to serve. He was a king. He deserved to be served by everybody and everything. All the animals and all the fish and all people serving him. But he became a servant. He answered the prayer. 
And not only did he become a servant, he was this living sacrifice that Paul talks about in Romans 12.1. The living sacrifice. He was completely and perfectly holy and pleasing to God in everything that he did. He submitted to God in total and loved God perfectly. And that resulted in a radical servant's life toward others. Two points here we got to get before I close. And then I'll close. Jesus Christ, as the ultimate servant, not only displayed it for us, but then gave us the power to do it ourselves. Something happened highly unconventional in John chapter 13. At the Last Supper, when Christ was celebrating with the Passover, the Passover Seder with his disciples, the Passover was very regimented, and it had parts of the meal, and there was prayer, and there were drinks, and it was very uh, um, choreographed. And Christ comes and he throws a curveball in it. And he does something so out of context, not only for the Passover meal, but within the culture. Listen, he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, he had something underneath, and wrapping a towel around his waist, after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You say, I don't get it, sounds kind of weird. I mean, what's wrong with their feet? Are they dirty? Yeah, they were dirty, right? They wore sandals, they were dirty. The one who would wash the feet in a household was the lowest of the lowest servants. In fact, it was the lowliest of tasks to be given to a servant in the house. It would be akin to the creator of the universe coming over to your house and cleaning your toilets. Or going in the backyard and cleaning up the mess that your dog makes. Or caring for your children when they have the flu. Or changing your baby. I mean, whatever in your mind is the lowest, the lowest service to take place, this is what's happening here. And Christ does it, and he does it for his disciples. And then he tells them this, listen. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on, and he returned to his place. And he says, do you understand what I have done? He asks them. Because they're going, what are you doing? You're Lord, you're Master, you're Rabone, right? You're the guy and you're washing our feet. We should be washing yours or someone else should be washing yours, but you should be washing ours. He said this to them, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, and that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you have these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. And the teaching is profound. The psalmist says, come down, Lord, and show us. Jesus says, all right, I'll come down, I'll show you. But you're not going to like what I show you. Because what I show you, you're not going to want to do. He washes their feet and he says, now, they get it. No servant's greater than the master. The master's washing feet. The master, there's no task, there's no service below the master. And therefore, there's no task or service for us. You can never say, you can never say, that's beneath me. (laughs) Right? You've heard that before? I've had people, I've had students say, oh, I would never take that job. Who are you? You can work at McDonald's. Come on. That's beneath you. Nothing's beneath the servant of Christ. Nothing. No act of love, no act of mercy, no act of service is beneath the servant of Christ because Christ said, I have washed your feet, now you wash as well. Now, if I left you there, you go, oh, there's still a problem here because seeing Christ as a perfect example doesn't help me a bit. And oftentimes it doesn't. Seeing examples certainly doesn't change the heart. It doesn't change mine. 
In fact, more often than not, the example will do one of two things for me. When I see someone living as I ought to be living, it may give me motivation temporarily, and I'll be good for a week, and then at the end of the week, I'm right back to my old sinful ways. And then I get mad at that example, right? Because that example is making me look bad. And then, I, then I'm angry, and I want, you know what? I'm going to get that guy, because I can't be like that guy. The example's not sufficient. It won't change the heart. If anything, it'll send us on a temporary road of frustration and then leave us angry with the example maker. We need something else. We don't just need a servant. We need a suffering servant. We don't just need a servant. We need a suffering servant. In verse 3 and 4 of the psalm, we can put Christ into this. He endured much contempt. He endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. This was Christ's life. It was certainly his life in the last week. Isaiah gives us great description. Listen to the suffering servant, which we need. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, and we esteemed him not. He was stricken by God and smitten by God and afflicted by God. What? Jesus Christ was the perfect servant to man, and we hated him and we killed him. He was the perfect servant to God out of love, and God forsook him. What is going on here? This storyline is so out of whack. The man who comes down from heaven to show us the way, he shows us the way, he lives in perfect loving obedience, serving mankind, and we kill him. He lives in perfect loving obedience to God the Father, and the Father forsakes him and sends him to hell. That's not the way the story's supposed to go. Why did it end like that? That's not a good ending. Hollywood gets this. You put an ending like that, it doesn't sell. We like happy endings. We need happy endings. Why did it end like this? This man who came down, ladies, this is the man you'd want to marry. Children, this is the man you'd want to be your father. Friends, this is the best friend. Pastors, this is the guy you want in your church. He's the perfect man to God and man, the perfect servant. We killed him. God condemned him to hell. You can't, you can't, go, you can't hear that story and say, well, why? You cannot not ask why. And the answer is extraordinary. Because God answered the psalmist's prayer. Did you see that? The psalmist says, mercy, Lord, mercy. And the father says, okay, I'll give you mercy. And he sent his son. He said, you want mercy? I'll give you mercy. But it's going to come at an incredible cost to you and to me. It's going to require me to send to hell and to condemn and kill the creator of the universe, my son. But I will answer your prayer. And he does. The The life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ is the mercy being poured out on mankind. We said, we looked our eyes to the Lord, our God, till he shows us mercy. Have mercy on us, us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. And he said, I will. Here's my son. Isaiah continued. We asked for it. We expect it. And God gave it to us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed And then we're told in verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Why? 
So that through the Lord, and, and, th- and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We're the offspring. It's us. We ask for mercy. He gives us mercy through Jesus Christ and the cross. And the product of it is his people, redeemed. You, me, and all those who have been saved by grace. The result of salvation in Christ is not only eternal life, it's a life well lived. It's a life of service. First to God and then to one another. God's greatest act of mercy came through his son. And it came for you. And here's the result for us as a people, collective. God's people are always to be fighting to set people free. In every capacity, political, religious, sociological oppression, we are to be fighting for that. Because we have, we have the one means by which someone is truly set free, and that's the gospel of grace. That's the good news. You can go and set someone free from institutional slavery, but apart from Christ, they ultimately will be enslaved again forever. You can set someone free from religious slavery, but apart from the gospel of grace, they'll be enslaved forever. We have the gospel. Psalm 123 prays for this transition from oppression. Listen, oppression. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, verse 4, much contempt from the arrogant, to freedom. Verse 3, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy. To servanthood. Verse 1, I lift up my eyes to you, to whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of the slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of their mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. That's a free person in Christ. Eugene Peterson put it like this. He said, the consequences of this transformation, you and Christ, are all positive. I've never yet heard a servant Christian complain of the oppressiveness of his servitude. I've never yet heard of a servant Christian rail against the restrictions of her service. A servant Christian is the freest person on earth. Did you hear that? He's right on. A servant Christian is the freest person on earth. So if you say, I want to be free, I feel I want to be free, then listen. This morning, your freedom is found in Christ. Your freedom is found in the right master, the king, your father. And it requires you to cry out for mercy. It does. You must say, Lord, have mercy on me. Come down to me. Come into my life. Set me free from my sin and my bondage. And deliver me today and forever. And then take the mercy. You ask for it. Take it. It's Christ. And he gives it to us freely through the cross. And then in that, every moment of every day, worship the Lord. And all that you do, all of your money, all of your relationships, every moment of every day, worship God. Pray to him, study the Bible, fellowship, sing your whole life, all day at work. Worship him and you know what's going to happen without you knowing it. The more you love God, the more you'll serve others. The more you worship God, the more you'll become a servant. And it will happen. And one day we'll say, you have a servant's heart. You're like, you've got to be kidding me. they say, oh, no. I see you serving and loving people all the time. How'd that happen? And you'll go, God, Christ. Don't go outside in, do inside out. Don't leave here saying, I'm going to be a better servant. Don't do that. 
Serve God, love God, worship God, and he will make you a servant. He will make you a servant in such a way that you no, people will not recognize. You won't recognize yourself. Let's pray to that end. Let's pray that God will stoop down to us and change us. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we cannot do this on our own. We recognize, Lord, that our desire is to serve ourselves. We want to serve me, Lord, more than we want to serve others. I pray that this morning we would hear the psalmist's prayer to you, mercy, Lord, mercy. We would ask it ourselves, and we would see that indeed you have come down through your son, Jesus Christ. He was the answer to mercy, the mercy cry. His life, his death, his resurrection, his broken body, and his spilled blood. He was the answer. We asked, you answered. And that having life in him, and having love in him, and worshiping him daily will change us. I pray, Father, for that radical change upon your children here, your children that you love, that you've gathered, that you're directing. I pray that we would be faithful, Lord, to exercise in this discipline of worship. That every day, Lord, not just on Sundays, but tomorrow morning we would sing to you. And tomorrow afternoon we would pray to you. And tomorrow evening we'd give thanks to you and we'd study your word. And tomorrow night we'd commune with brothers and sisters and we would worship you every day. And in light of that, Lord, you would make us brilliant because you have already in Christ. Give us this wisdom in line with this revelation so that we be faithful as a church. In Christ's name, amen.